we're going to go ahead and get started, guys. I'm going to keep on moving. I got a little, as, uh, as Tim Ruba would say, fun facts. Fun facts for you guys as we get started. Did you know, John, that your brain uses 20% of the oxygen that's in your blood? And when you're thinking really hard, your brain can actually use up to 50% of the oxygen that's in your blood. It's pretty amazing. And even every minute, up to a liter of blood flows through your brain. Every minute. It's pretty amazing, right? Like half a two-liter bottle flowing through your brain every minute. And another fun fact, when you're awake, your brain actually can create up to 25 watts of electricity, which is, if you look at those little lights up there, those are like five or seven watts each. So you could power like three or four of those with just your brain power if we could connect it to the light. Pretty cool, huh? Another fun fact, uh, the information travels through your body from your brain to your appendages up to 260 miles per hour. Super fast, right? And here's one more for you. The average person has between 12,000 and 60,000 thoughts per day. It's a lot of thoughts. And statistically, about 95% of those thoughts are exactly the same things that you thought the day before and the day before. And about 80% of them are negative. That is an interesting statistic. And the reason I bring those fun facts up is because today we're talking about the mind. We're talking about the spirit-led mind. And... The human brain is an incredibly powerful piece of flesh, isn't it? And the fact is that neuroscientists have made incredible advancements throughout history in how we understand the brain. Yet no one has reached the depth of complete understanding when it comes to how the brain works. And even more especially... Nobody has reached the depths of understanding when it comes to the relationship and the distinction between the brain and the mind. Have you guys ever thought about that? What's the difference between your brain and your mind? Some scientists would say there is no difference, while others would say there is a distinction and there's a connection and there's an overlap, but there's a disagreement between those two sides and nobody has come to a final agreement or a depth of understanding. The fact is we've made significant progress in what we know about our minds. And you can even sense this from uh, the recent media push to remove the stigma from mental illness, right? We've seen over history, people have been mistreated and abused because of mental illness, right? But as we've come to understand more about how the brain works, we've, we've made progress in some sense in how we treat those things, right? You guys notice that? There's, there's this push these days to uh, remove the stigma, stigma that's surrounding mental illness, and that's a good thing. But there's still broad disagreement and misunderstanding when it comes to the intangible part of our human identity, which is the mind. We can map the brain and view its activity on a screen but we cannot fully understand the mind. And the fact is, the mind is a God-given, essential aspect of our humanity 
as created in his image. And the Bible has a lot to say about the mind. And so our text for today, if you guys haven't already turned there, we're in Romans 8 still. And we're going to start in verse 5. So go ahead and turn there. But our text for today deals with the mind. And this is really important for us to grasp, to understand, to pay attention to, because your mind is a battlefield. Do you guys believe that? Your mind is a battlefield. Just think about every time you pull out your phone and turn it on, there's a battle for your mind. There's a battle for your attention and your will. Every time you go into a classroom and you sit down to listen to the teacher, there's a battle going on for your mind because the information being passed on to you is intended to influence how you think. Every time you get together with your friends and you're having conversations, there's a battle going on in your mind because people are going to try to influence you with their thoughts, with their opinions, with their perspectives. Everybody wants to influence the way that you think. And even beyond the physical things that we can see, there is a spiritual war going on for your mind. Is there not? There are spiritual, as the, as the Bible says, principalities and powers that are waging war against you, trying to gain influence in your mind. And so even though there have been like these incredible advancements in how we understand the brain, in neuroscience and psychology and all those things, incredible advancements. Yet with every advancement comes another opportunity for people to take advantage of those things. What I mean is that the more we understand how the brain works, the better we can leverage that information for any given agenda. I, I don't know if you guys have seen The Social Dilemma, but it's a documentary that, that goes to show People who design social media know how the brain works, and they use that information to sell products, right? All of that to say, guys, that your mind is a battlefield, and every advancement we make is another opportunity for that to be used against you. The battle in our mind is relentless. But in the midst of all those competing agendas, you, there's millions of different agendas that are all battling for your attention, but in the middle, there's one agenda that matters the most, and that agenda is not going to disappoint you. It's not going to take advantage of you or use you or sell you. It's one that offers true peace and life, and that's the agenda of King Jesus. I'm sure you guys knew that's where I was going. The agenda of King Jesus is the one agenda that matters when it comes to the battle for your mind. And whether you believe in him or not, whether you follow him or not, whether you obey him, whether you worship him or not, his agenda is the single most important one for your mind. And so here's where we're going today in Romans chapter 8. The spirit-led life is characterized by a spirit-led mind. See, as a Christian who follows Christ, your life can be overflowing in the fruit of a mind that is walking in obedience to the Spirit. Your life can be overflowing in incredible fruit 
when your mind is led by the Spirit, when your mind isn't consumed with worldly concerns, you can live a life where your mind experiences victory over sin struggles. Do you believe that? You can live a life with a mind that thinks like Jesus. The potential fruit and the eternal impact of a spirit-led life with a spirit-led mind is practically limitless. And so my desire, Dan's desire, is to see each one of you growing and increasing in that fruit for God's glory, right? We don't want just want to be stagnant and content battling in our minds constantly. We want you guys to be walking in the victory and the freedom of, of a spirit-led mind and a spirit-led life. So let's read the text. It's uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to renew our minds even through examining this passage. Holy Spirit, I want to pray that you would come right now and empower me to speak the truth, Lord, and open up our hearts and our ears and our minds to understand the truth of your word. Lord, I pray for each person in this room, each person listening at home, where there is a battle in the mind, Lord, I pray that your renewing and transforming power would bring a sense of victory. Lord, I pray that your agenda would be so compelling to each one of us that we can't help but pursue you. So, Lord, please teach us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to use the Foster family as an example of a fun little illustration. So they've got nine kids, 11 people in the family, right? Imagine that family eight or 10 years ago when Eva was really small, a tiny little kid, everyone's younger, and I see some more of them back there and they heard their names and now they're not coming in. <laughs> All right, so imagine, imagine just for the sake of illustration, they've got a lot of people in their family and they've got one vehicle, and they've got to transport everybody in the family to all the different schools, all the different jobs, to church, everywhere. They've got to use one vehicle. And then their vehicle breaks down, and they need to get a new one. So they make up their mind. They're going to go out, and they're going to buy a new vehicle. They can only get one, though. What type of vehicle do you think they're going to buy? A van with a lot of seats, right? They're not going to go out and buy a Corvette, probably. They're going to go out and they're going to look for a vehicle that can accommodate at least 11 people, a vehicle that's dependable, it's durable, it's affordable. That's the type of vehicle they're going to go look for. And so the type of vehicle that they go and search for, that they set their minds upon, the decision that they make is based on an underlying factor. And what do you think that is? 
What's that underlying factor that drives that decision? It's their identity as a large family. Their identity as a family with a lot of kids that need to get places. In other words, their decision flows from their identity. And that family identity becomes something of an authoritative criteria by which they make decisions. Does that make sense? It could be anything. It doesn't have to be just a vehicle. Think about if they had to buy a new home. Their underlying identity as a large family is going to influence that decision. It's going to influence when they go to the grocery store, what they buy, how much they buy. It's going to influence employment opportunities and where they work and how much they get paid. All these things, all these decisions in the mind flow out of their identity as a large family. And so here's the point as we jump into verse 5. Your mind's priorities reveal your heart's authorities. And I'll explain that. To say it another way, your mindset reveals what's ruling your life. Simply put, when you look at the text, Paul just says it this way. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Your mind's priorities reveal your heart's authorities. And so what you see here in the text is two categories, two mutually exclusive categories. They're separate authorities, the flesh and the spirit. The language here isn't just talking about a lifestyle. A lifestyle anybody can put on at any time, right? A lifestyle can change depending on whatever pop culture says it should, right? He's not talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about your fundamental existence and identity. The, the English translation says the words, those who live, but in the underlying language, it actually is saying those who exist according to the flesh or the spirit. This is an issue of identity and authority. Let me just stop right there and just bring up the phrase according to. We often don't break down prepositional phrases and what they mean, but I just was thinking about this. What does it mean to exist according to something? What it means is that your identity aligns in agreement with or in conformity with that thing. It means that you find your sense of purpose, you find your sense of security in that thing. And it becomes that governing force that defines and directs your life. It's that governing criteria that influences your decisions. And so the result, inevitably, according to verse 5, is that those who exist according to the flesh or in alignment with the flesh are going to make decisions out of that identity. And those who exist according to the spirit are going to make decisions out of that identity. But before we go any further, I want to talk about the flesh, too. What does Paul mean by the flesh? I think oftentimes this is one of those biblical terms that we just gloss over and we, we think we know what it means, but maybe we don't actually know what it means. Um, so I just want to break it down for a minute. When Paul talks about the flesh or the things of the flesh, there's several different uses throughout his writings. And in the New Testament and the Old Testament, there's even more uses of the term the flesh. 
sometimes the flesh refers to simply the human body. It's the physical part of you that you can see, that you can touch. It's your skin, it's your body, it's your bones, your blood. Think about John chapter 1 where it says, The Word who was with God and was God became flesh and dwelt among us. He became human in the flesh, right? Well, other times in the Bible, the flesh refers to just mere humanity or different types of people. Like in Acts 2, remember the prophecy says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That means I will pour out my spirit on all different types and classes of people, right? He says men, women, young and old, servants, different types of people. But one of the primary ways that Paul uses the term flesh is referring to our fundamental human, rebellious, sinful nature that's opposed to God's will. And he describes the flesh as not only opposed to the Holy Spirit, but he also describes the works of the flesh as darkness and as worldliness and as corruption. And it's in this context of the flesh as our human rebellious nature that Paul writes in Colossians 3, put to death what is earthly among you, specifically sexual immorality, evil desires, impurity, covetousness, idolatry. In Ephesians 4, he'll say, put off the, the old self that is corrupt through deceitful desires. In Galatians 5, he says, the works of the flesh are evident, and namely, this is, just listen to this. The works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's an all-encompassing category, right? There's a lot of things listed there. And Paul says these things are works of the flesh. They're works of a rebellious human nature, and they're evident to everyone. They're evident in that they're clearly opposed to what we know deep down God doesn't desire for our lives. Yet they're deceitful because they promise to give you satisfaction. They promise to give you pleasure, even though they can never satisfy you. But there's one more passage I want to point out when it comes to the flesh. The passages above talk about kind of overtly, blatantly obvious immorality, right? They're evident. These things, we look at them like, oh yeah, that's, that's a work of the flesh. It's not God's will. But maybe some of you are like me, and my testimony, my story, is that it's always been relatively easy to avoid the overtly rebellious behaviors. And I know I'm not the only one like that. Maybe it's easy for you to avoid those external things, yet your rebellion stays hidden in here, and you're puffed up with pride, self-righteousness. You're very proud of all the things that you're good at. You can maintain a really good reputation. Yet Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he's actually describing his former life as a Pharisee, and he's describing the fact that his religious zeal was excellent. He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I did everything according to the law. I did everything by the book. But what does he say about that? He says that religious zeal was putting his confidence in the flesh. 
So what he does is he expands this idea of the flesh, not just to overtly exterior immoral behaviors, but also internal acts of religious zeal and righteousness that are driven by pride and self-righteousness. All of those things are the flesh at work. And so we're all included in that. Nobody escapes that. Did you catch that, though? The outward appearance of religious goodness can be a work of the flesh. That's a sobering reality. The outward appearance of doing the right thing can be a work of the flesh. And so, when we break down this idea of the flesh, what we come down to is it's the fundamental identity of all humans who stand opposed to God's perfect will and authority before they belong to Christ. Even the best intentions, even the best actions can be things of the flesh if they flow from a heart posture of rebellion against God's authority. Piper says it this way, the flesh is any human action or achievement without dependence upon the Holy Spirit and without glorying, exalting in, trusting, treasuring, and valuing Jesus Christ. That's the flesh. So let's bring it back to the text. We've got these two categories, those who exist according to the flesh, those who exist according to the spirit. In other words, those whose fundamental identity is either without dependence on the Holy Spirit, without trusting in Christ, or those who have been born again in the spirit and are dependent upon the spirit in faith in Christ. Those are the two categories. Jesus said in that famous discourse with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that only those who are born of the Spirit are spirit. Those who are born of the flesh are flesh. Two categories, and they're mutually exclusive. Paul's saying that your mindset, the things that you set your mind on, the things that you focus on that consume your thought life, are simply revealing which category you live in. The thoughts that consume you, the priorities which dominate your decisions, they reveal where your allegiance lies and who your highest authority is. So let me just ask you guys, what is your mind set upon? What are those priorities in your mind? We've got to take stock and take inventory and really evaluate, like, where is my mind at? What are the things that consume my mind? What are those 95% of your thoughts that are repeated every day, day in and day out? What are those things? We've got to identify them. If your thoughts were cast onto the screen like a Netflix menu, what would show up in your suggestions? What would show up in your continue thinking about section? Thank God that isn't a reality because that would be um, very sobering. But for the sake of evaluating our hearts, it's necessary that we go there with the Lord, that we, we sit down and ask the Lord, where, where is my hope? What is it lying in? What are the things <coughs> consuming my mind and what is my mind set upon? Is it set upon the flesh or is it set upon the spirit? Because if you 
get down to it and you realize that your mind is set upon the things of the Spirit, the text says most likely you are living according to this flesh and not the Spirit, right? We've got to evaluate that. Your mind's priorities reveal your heart's authorities. But it's important to note that it doesn't work the other way. It's important to note that your thoughts reveal and flow from your identity, not vice versa. Go back to our illustration with Dan and the van. If he goes out and buys a 12-passenger van, does that determine his identity as a large family? Yes or no? If he goes out and buys a van, does that determine the fact that he has a large family? No. Anybody can buy a 12-passenger van. It doesn't determine their identity, right? He could go buy a truck. That doesn't determine his identity. His decision to buy a van flows from his identity. It doesn't work the other way. Your thoughts and your intellect do not and they cannot determine whether you exist according to the flesh or according to the spirit. That's really important to remember. Your thoughts cannot and do not determine your identity. <coughs> remember that. Your willpower, your mental fortitude is not enough to transfer you from one identity to the other. Which brings us to our second point, that your mind's priorities reveal not only your authorities, but also your destiny. They reveal the path that you are walking on. And so the message of the world, this is why it's so important for us to hear this. The message of the world is that you determine your path. You determine your destiny. Whatever you set your mind to, you can do it. Have you guys heard that before? That's the message of the world. It's the message of every Disney movie and a lot of professors. Whatever you set your mind and your heart on, you can achieve it. And even when it comes to areas of mental illness and mental health, often that is the advice of professional, licensed counselors and therapists. You have the power in you to overcome all the problems in your life. If you just replace the negative thoughts with positive thoughts, you'll be able to move forward. That's the message that so many people are receiving day in and day out. And it's easy, when you look at Romans 8, 5, it's easy to look at it and read it like this. Now, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the spiritual things. To set the mind on the Spirit is life. Well, if I just think about enough spiritual things, then I'm a spiritual person and I'm good. But that's not what it's saying. It's the actual opposite of what the verse is saying. And certainly, certainly thinking positive thoughts is good and helpful. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It is good and helpful, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But underneath all of that, on the most basic level, if you exist according to the flesh, you won't set your mind on spiritual things because you can't. You can't just will your thoughts into spiritual life because you actually can't do that. You will set your mind upon 
futile attempts to find meaning and significance and security and pleasure in all the things of the flesh again and again, which are going to fail. They're going to disappoint you every time because that fleshly identity is governed by any and every authority but your creator. Look at verse 6. Paul says, to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And keep reading in verse 7. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We can't just will our way out of a fleshly identity into a person of God's spirit. These are two mutually exclusive categories, which are kingdom authorities. The flesh is a kingdom of this world, and the spirit is God's kingdom of heaven. And your mindset your mental priorities, the thoughts racing through your mind, consuming you, they reveal which kingdom you align with. And it's that kingdom identity that's underlying it all, either of the flesh or of the spirit, that's actually determining which path you're on, what your spiritual destiny is. It's not the things you think about that determine that. It's the identity underneath that determines that. Your thoughts are only revealing which path you're on, not determining it. The path of the flesh is death. Not only does it lead to ultimate spiritual separation from God, but even here and now in this life, it's going to be a million little deaths every time you set your mind on a fleshly savior and it fails you. You're going to die to disappointment again and again, and you're going to find yourself trying to go back to the same stupid thing again. That's the path of death. The path of flesh rejects God as the king, and instead it takes up the authority to do what I want to do, however I want to do it. Whatever authority I want to follow is, is what I'm going to do. And the lie is that that's the path to freedom. But the, the reality is that is the path to death and not freedom. Those who live according to the flesh, as Dan talked about last week, stand condemned. Remember that idea of condemnation? When you're on the path of, of the flesh, identified in the flesh, you are condemned. Because your flesh is hostile to God. Your flesh doesn't submit to God's authority because it can't. And it's because of that hostility that your flesh will never please God. No matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, you're not going to please God because you're identified with the kingdom of the flesh. Your good intentions aren't going to remove your condemnation and it's not going to make you right before God. But to set the mind on the spirit is, what does the verse say? To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Remember, Jesus said only those born of the spirit are spiritual. Only those who are born of the water and the spirit, that's John chapter 3, can enter the kingdom of heaven. To set your mind upon the spirit is life 
not because your mind unlocked some secret to life, but it's because the only way you can even have that mindset, the only way you can set your mind on the spirit is because you've already received the miracle of your dead flesh coming to life in the spirit of God. The only way you can set your mind on the spirit is because you've been regenerated by the spirit. That's the only way to get from the path of flesh to the path of the spirit. It means that your identity of flesh and hostility has been reborn, recreated, and replaced by the Holy Spirit and a new identity, and your mind is now being renewed. It's no longer following after every other authority, but it's being renewed by the Holy Spirit. And the only possible way to receive that miracle to get off the path of the de of death of the flesh into the path of life and peace is by being joined together with the one who became flesh to fulfill everything we couldn't fulfill so that he could condemn sin and save sinners. That's the only way to get from one category into the other. If I could say it this way, I say this carefully, this is like mental health 101. Beneath every other therapy or strategy towards mental health, having your identity made new in Christ is the foundation. Think about what it does to your mind to be constantly living in a state where you are rejecting your created purpose and you're living exactly the opposite way of how you were made to live. That is a recipe for not mental health, but all of the wrong things, right? And again, I'm saying this carefully. I'm not trying to create some new category of mental health. I'm not trying to um, delegitimize actual things. My point is that so many people are pursuing mental health. They want to have peace of mind, but they're doing it in the flesh. And so every solution to the mental problems they face is a fleshly solution. And the Bible says the fleshly solutions are death. They're not going to fix the problems. They're not going to bring true peace of mind, even though there are plenty of helpful strategies that secular counselors use. Don't hear me wrong. There are plenty of helpful tools. But underneath all of it, if you remain in the flesh hostile to God, Though you may have some relief temporarily, you're still on the path of death. You're still bound to run into those problems again and again because you're living the way you weren't designed to live. I would love to have some kind of study done on the impacts of the spiritual which cannot be seen upon, uh, upon the mental health of humans. I would love if that could be possible. I don't know if it would be ever possible, but I really believe that we have to have a foundation for mental health that goes beneath the world's ideas of mental health. And it has to go back to our identity. If you're identified with the flesh, rejecting God's authority, you're going to stay there. And the only way you can get out of that is to be redeemed with, by your Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's at that point that you're able to set your minds upon the things of the Spirit.
only the spirit-led mind will take confidence in God. Only the spirit-led mind will seek to do his will truly. The mind that's rescued and revived by the spirit is now free and able like never before to focus on the things of God. And again, just another caveat, don't hear me saying that unbelievers outside of Christ are mentally ill and Christians are mentally healthy. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is that our identity inside or out of Christ affects the mind. It affects the mind. And we need the spirit-led mind to give us true life and peace. As Paul goes on to say in verse 9 to the church, this is where you live if you have the spirit of God. You live on the path of life and peace. If you have the spirit, you no longer belong to the flesh. You're not a debtor to the flesh. You don't have to live by it anymore. You're free. You're able to set your mind on the things of the spirit. This is going to set the stage for the next section of verses that we'll be covering in the next few weeks, which is going to expand even more on the positive side of living in the spirit. This section is more about the death of the flesh, and the next section is more about the life in the spirit. But we cannot escape the reality from this text that your underlying spiritual identity determines where your mind is set. And your underlying spiritual identity is what's driving your ultimate destiny. Your thought life reveals where you're at. It's the spirit-led life that is characterized by a spirit-led mind. And so, in conclusion, I just want to spend a few minutes, what time is it, 12.02, just a few minutes considering something and it's that many of you are in, in another category, almost, sort of a crossover category, where you say, I have the Spirit of God. I believe in Jesus fully. I follow Jesus. But I'm still battling fleshly thoughts all the time. What's the story with that? This is what I want to talk about for just a few minutes. You've got the Spirit of God dwelling in you because you've been born again in the Spirit by faith in Christ. You had the miracle of regeneration. You know that you belong to Christ, yet it seems like you can't escape those fleshly thoughts. It seems like your mind just keeps spinning and spinning and battling those old, deceitful, selfish, fleshly thoughts. Maybe it's a mind that's set on lust. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's a mind that's set on bitterness and unforgiveness. Maybe you're constantly thinking how you can get back at that person for what they did to you. Maybe you're constantly thinking about how wrong it was the way they treated you and how much that hurt you. Maybe it's not even anything immoral. Maybe your confidence just keeps drifting back to your own abilities. That's my weakness. Maybe you just constantly find yourself stepping out from under dependence upon the Spirit and taking on 
dependence upon yourself. Whatever the situation you might be in, you feel that battle waging in your mind day in and day out, and you say, I feel like I belong to God and my mind is set on Christ, yet why am I still fighting all this stuff? The Lord wants you to know that his promise of life and peace in the spirit isn't just a future hope, it's for now as well. You guys hear that? The promise of life and peace in your mind is also for right now, not just when you get to heaven. So it's only those who've been born of the Spirit who can set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Only those born of the Spirit can please God. In the Spirit, you're free and able to please God. In the flesh, you weren't, but now you are. But the fact that you're free and able to please God doesn't mean that you automatically do. Ever since the beginning of time, God designed his relationship with humans to be one where we relate to him in trust and dependence in relationship out of love. He never designed our relationship to be some robotic obligation. And so the same thing applies now as it did then. While in the flesh you can't please God, once you've been redeemed by the Spirit in Christ, you now can please God, and that's exactly what he's calling you into. Not a robotic, automatic obligation to do what's right, but a relationship of love. And the key to the victory and the peace in your mind right now is allowing the Spirit of God to lead you. And it sounds like so simple and so cliche, but that is it. Allowing the Spirit of God to lead you. Think about all that the Holy Spirit does for us. I'm going to list them off. The Holy Spirit awakens you. He convicts you. He resurrects you, regenerates you, cleanses you, transforms you, sanctifies you, intercedes for you, comforts you, teaches you, empowers you, leads you. He loves you. He does everything necessary to apply the redemption that Christ accomplished to you so that you're free and able to please God and obey him, but the Holy Spirit never forces you to obey him. He never forces you to obey. Earlier in the book of Romans, in chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. His fundamental ministry in our lives is to connect us to the love of the Father. And God's definition of love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 4, is one that doesn't insist on its own way. Even though God is perfectly right all the time, his version of love doesn't insist on his way. And don't mishear what I'm saying. Yes, God calls us to holiness. But the way that he relates to us, his definition of love is one that goes extravagantly above and beyond in kindness and mercy to pursue and rescue his enemies as his beloved bride so that we melt under his grace and we want to love him back. We, so that we long to love him back. That's the type of relationship that he's calling us into. It's not an obligation. It's a response to love with love. And so he's not going to force you to obey him. 
And so as a Christian who has the Holy Spirit, you're now able to please God. He's not going to force you to. He's calling you. He's compelling you to obey him out of love and service and gratitude and joy. But we can't do that in our own strength, which is why we have the Spirit. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go back to my throne in heaven and leave the Holy Spirit with you. It's better for you that the Comforter is with you. You're going to need him. The Spirit-led Christian doesn't wait for God to force obedience. He just simply responds to love with love. The Spirit-led Christian is intertwined with God in this beautiful dance that's made up of a million little steps. And each of those million little steps is a million little miracles, a million little examples of his love where he's strengthening our trust and dependence upon him. Every time he takes a step and we follow, he proves himself. He takes another step and we follow, he proves himself faithful and true and dependable and righteous. We're in this dance with him. It's not a duty, it's a dance of love with our perfect heavenly father. And the spirit is the one working it out in us. And so when it comes to the mind, you have everything you need to win the battles because Christ has already won it. He's already given you the spirit to have victory. If you're facing temptation, the Bible says he gives you the way of escape. If you're facing fear, he says the spirit of God gives boldness and power. Spirit is a spirit of love and self-control, self a sound mind, not a spirit of fear. You have everything you need in the spirit. But what happens is so often when the spirit takes a step, we let go and we fall out of step with him. And that happens, as Paul says later in Romans, because we make provisions for the flesh. We allow opportunities for that old, deceitful, corrupt flesh to creep back in. We don't necessarily put it to death all the time. We, we allow it to survive in our hearts. And so when the Spirit moves and we've made those provisions for the flesh, that's when we fall to temptation. Galatians 5 says when we're keeping in step with the Spirit, we're not going to gratify those desires because we're going to be so consumed with God's desires. But he's not forcing you to stay in step with him. That's the beauty of sanctification, right? Is that God does all the work, yet he also requires that we do work with him. It's this work of keeping in step with him, but it's not a work that is gruesome, and laborious it's a work of love where we're strengthened and we're sanctified and as we do that dance with him your mind is growing in life and peace and being renewed and transformed paul wouldn't say to be transformed by the renewing of your mind if it were impossible for us to avoid that does that make sense he tells us to be, come under the transforming of our minds that the Holy Spirit is working out in us. But we have to come under that and submit to it, take part in it, to follow step by step. 
And so it just, it seems when I say this and you go back home and those temptations or those thoughts creep back in your mind, it seems almost as if this wouldn't work. But guys, I promise you, the word of God is true. The spirit of God is faithful. And the promise of God is that he's going to be renewing you as you keep in step with him. We're capable of quenching the spirit's work just as we are capable and free to please God in his spirit. We're able to make provisions for the flesh just as we're free and able to reject the, fr- the flesh and to have life in him. So guys, the Holy Spirit wants to continually fill you. He wants you to be continually in step with him yet it's possible for us to make provisions for the flesh. We've got to do the putting to death of the flesh. We fill our minds with things of the flesh, and then we wonder why we're in this middle of this raging battle. We've got to put to death the flesh. We can't make provisions for the flesh. We've got to keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray, guys. I'm going to close there. Lord, I just pray that um, that this truth of our freedom in the Spirit to obey out of love, Lord, I pray that that would be the consuming desire of each person in here. Lord, that we would see your grace and your love for us that's done all the work to save us. Lord, that we would just bask in that grace that it would compel us to love you and to put to death those creeping old thoughts from the flesh, Lord, that we would just cut them off. Lord, protect us from being entertained by immoral things. Lord, help us to have the boldness to just kill the things that are dragging us back into the flesh. Those are painful experiences to, to cut down idols, to cut to death, the fleshly things that creep up in us. That's a painful thing, Lord, yet it is the path to life. And Lord, you've promised that we will have ultimate, spiritual, eternal life with you, yet in here and now, Lord, you're calling us to a million victories and a million miracles where we see that life and that peace taking action now in our lives, Lord, where where that battle becomes less and less of a battle as we become more and more consumed with the love of our Heavenly Father. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just take these thoughts that have come to my mind, Lord, take them and deposit them in the hearts of each person who hears this, Lord. And Spirit of God, would you water those seeds, Lord, bring the increase in those seeds so that we would all be Christians who are bearing fruit of a Spirit-led mind that we would all be walking in the victory and the power of a sound mind in the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that you've done everything for us. Now I ask that you would help us to walk in step with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, guys, we're going to close it out with a song. And... uh
The song gets to that authority piece. There is a king, and that king has conquered death. He holds the keys. And so, guys, as we close, I just encourage you to stand up, and we're going to sing this out. We're going to declare our allegiance to King Jesus.
and he gives you grace and peace and he bless you with his presence. I'm not worthy to enter his presence. I'm just giving you guys a benediction from my heart. Um, that the Lord would bless you as you go home, as you're in your battle of the mind, that he would bless you with his presence. And in that battle, that he would shine his face upon you, that you would recall to mind the testimony of scripture, that he is with you, that he is for you, that he loves you, and that he's calling you to walk with him. And he bless you in that way.